From the heart of The Ohio State University on the Oval, this is Voices of Excellence from the College of Arts and Sciences with your host, David Staley. Voices focuses on the innovative work being done by faculty and staff in the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University. From departments as wide-ranging as art, astronomy, chemistry and biochemistry, physics, emergent materials, mathematics and languages, among many others, the college always has something great happening. Join us to find out what's new now. Welcome once again to Voices, where because of COVID-19, we are once again recording this over Zoom, which means that the sound quality may not be of the type you're accustomed to when you listen to these interviews in the ASC Tech Studios. So with that, I am very pleased to introduce my guest today, who is Shannon Winnipst, Professor and Chair of the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the Ohio State University College of the Arts and Sciences. Her areas of expertise include queer and trans studies, race theory, psychoanalytic theory, and 20th century French theory. Welcome to Voices, Dr. Winnipst. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, I know you've been working a lot and thinking a lot lately about issues around structural racism, and I'd like to start there. Tell us about, tell us about your work here. Absolutely. It's been a wild ride, 2020, mm-hmm. and on top of the pandemic, as we know, there's been this incredible uprising that I prefer to call Black Lives Matter, and it's really precipitated some conversations that I've been yearning for across my life, across my career, particularly in the university And I'm really pleased that the College of Arts and Sciences is taking this on directly. Dean Ritter had us convene as a college, the college leadership, a couple of weeks ago. We spent five hours in a retreat thinking about what the university and what the college particularly can do to address structural racism. And the turn that I'm really hopeful about and feels very fresh and inviting to me is to think about the university's participation in structural racism and to think about how we are in fact part of the problem. So as I've been working on racism, whiteness, along with sexuality and gender throughout my career, I have grown to really become attuned to some of the deeper unconscious habits that we hold around some of these questions. So I've really been trying to turn through the Black Lives Matter movement, I've become very interested and excited about what I hope is a change in public discourse, such that we no longer only talk about this as racism, we actually are beginning to hear the words anti-blackness, and I would add to that anti-indigeneity, and we're also beginning to hear the words which we've actually heard across public spheres for the last two or three years of white supremacy. So anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, define these for us? Sure. Anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity would, from most scholars' viewpoints now, name the kind of structural and systemic shifts that we see through the transatlantic slave trade and anti-blackness and through colonialism. Twinned events that occur from the 15th century forward and really ground us in what we mean by racism. Race is a concept that emerges 
some would argue it emerges across the 17th and 18th centuries through economic practices, but it really gets codified in 19th century scientific racism, where you begin to see a medicalized notion of race and always this legal notion of race. And I think one of the frustrations in the United States is that, particularly in the legal system, the language of race and the language of racism simply hasn't done the work of uprooting these systems. And so I'm interested in how if we begin to call them out in their specificity and in the longevity of that six centuries that we've been having these systems of both anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity, that we may then begin to have greater tools and also greater ethical courage to take on the immensity of these problems. What are some of those tools? What are some of the things that can be done? Right. So this is where things get sticky quickly, right? <laughs> and so you mentioned that I specialize in psychoanalytic theory, and I do. And I remain, while I'm not an orthodox psychoanalytic theorist by any means, I think the notion and the concept of the unconscious is really important. And what that allows me to do is to think about some of these problems and social events and systems as powerfully irrational in addition to rational, right? If we agree that anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity are deep in the unconscious of this culture, then we must also be able to say that it is not something that we can simply rationally solve as a problem. And so sometimes the habits that we have, right, what I'd call deep epistemological and affective habits, such as thinking, oh, this is a problem, let me delineate it, let me figure it out, and then I will solve it, that those, in fact, are part of the system. So they're part of sort of the story we're telling ourselves, we here being the primary inhabitants of the university, which are white persons. You say racism is deep in the unconscious of this culture. Why? That's right. I'm trying to take very seriously and to really meditate on the depth of these six centuries, right? That the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism are what Sadia Hartman calls the past that has never passed. Hmm. So it's always with us. It initiates what we now call global capitalism. It's never gone away. It's just morphed and changed and intensified. You had suggested earlier that one of the things that you would want to achieve is a change in our public discourse. Of what kind? Right. So we're going to have to be able to name this problem in a fresh way, right? And not just a fresh way because we're, you know, my last book was on neoliberalism. I think we love new stuff, right? The new is always what the, makes the market turn. I don't mean new in that way. I mean new, again, the language of racism hasn't done what we thought it would do. If we want to take more a shorter historical look, we can look at the civil rights era and think, okay, what went wrong there such that we actually haven't seen the gains that we thought we would want to see there? How to get at the roots of this, right? And so I think the roots of it are about naming things. And so I do think anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity are more specific naming of the problem that would help us to become, and we as white persons, to hold ourselves to a higher standard, to sort of hold our feet to the fire 
in a more direct and steady way. So the other phrase I used was white supremacy. Mm. Very interested in white supremacy entering public discourse, not only as like, oh, those white supremacists over there, but as all of us, that we're inhabiting a system of white supremacy that is always going to uphold white values, which I would include things like liberalism, right? Things like tolerance, things like problem solving, things like rationality. Those may all, in fact, turn out to be the stuff of whiteness and the stuff that we need to be able to look at as part of the system of violence. Naming matters, as you suggest there. What does that look like in sort of a practical sense? How do we change names or rectify names, I guess? <laughs> right. Well, we're certainly in an era where that's happening in the public sphere, right? So the issue of naming and the issue of memorials, the way we're taking down memorials, the question that arose in the summer, right, which is should Columbus change its name? Should this city change its name? Which I think is an exciting question and not one that we should shrug off too quickly. Names absolutely matter. Along the lines of indigenous history, you know, there is a fabulous pedagogical practice of trying to look at what is, quote, hidden in plain sight. So that what does it mean that this city is named Columbus? What does it mean that a local high school has a mascot named the Braves? What does it mean that we have all of these symbolic parts of our culture that actually have deep ties to settler colonialism? Power of naming. So I know that part of your work is wrestling with the issue of white death. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about this work. Absolutely. This is work that's been ongoing for a couple of years now and that is spurred by my work in Black studies and particularly Black feminist studies. Sadia Hartman is a, a remarkable Black feminist who, along with Hortense Spillers, coins this concept of porno-troping. And porno-troping is, in their view, the continual habit of white spectatorship as wanting to see Black suffering and Black death. And so you think about the quintessential genre of the slave movie. Mm. The slave movie or the slave novel has often historically been about some pretty grotesque scenes of torturing black bodies. So part of my project is to really try to think about how we might flip some of these scripts in order that we might get a better handle on the role of whiteness in the world. And so one of the basic points of departure has been to take W.B. Du Bois' famous question of what does it feel like to be the problem and take it on as whiteness, right? What does it mean as a white person to be the problem? How does it feel to be the problem? What is the problem? The problem is one of systemic violence and greed. Yes, I may not participate in that individually, but I certainly benefit from it. And so if we take that up and we try to think about that violence in its sort of most intense forms, then you have a whole school of thought that's very popular right now called Afro-pessimism. And Afro-pessimism is arguing, among other things, that that violence, if we are really going to encounter it, if we're really going to countenance it, must be understood as beyond redemption. Mm. That's a high bar. That's a hard thing for us to, to wrestle with, and it gets into problems of representation. But one of the things it opens on to is how have we represented white death? 
has it only been represented as a kind of tragedy, as a kind of romanticized, individualized grief? When it's represented comedically, how does that comedy work? And when you say represented, you mean like in, in movies, in literature, television? Is that the sort of thing we mean? That's exactly correct. So all of the above. And some of it has been a look pretty directly at white suicide. So that one of the examples of white suicide that I started looking at was television. Mm. And it took me back to the Adams family. Because oh. if you look at early, early scenes from the Adams family back in the 60s, it's an endless parade of a very hilarious kind of performance of white suicide. And so one of the questions is, how did we get from there to something like Suicide Diaries, right? Where you have this tragic sense of suicide as something that's always at the edge of adolescence. And of course, we don't want that to happen. So I'm interested in what's happening across representations of white death and representations of white suicide in culture, in popular culture, mostly television, films and books and literature, yeah. In addition to suicide, I know you've also given some thought to these images around the opioid crisis, yes? I have worked on the issues of representations inside the opioid crisis, particularly alongside an undergraduate who wrote an excellent thesis on this. And the questions there are complex because there is a thinking in this, uh, there's a recent book called Dying of Whiteness, which looks at some of these things as the problems of whiteness, that we get such attention to the opioid epidemic that it has granted a great deal of media and government attention. Part of the question is why? Why is it getting such attention? And how can we contrast that with what happened in the 80s around the crack epidemic and the use of crack cocaine? So you have two addictive epidemics, but one has mostly white rural people involved, and that one has gained greater traction. Any thoughts to sort of our current COVID-19 moment and questions of death, white death or otherwise? Precisely. And so I think we know this already. We can hear this in the public sphere a great deal. But COVID-19, as we know, is hitting black and brown communities in far greater numbers than it is white communities. And the fact that the funding is not forthcoming at this moment from the federal government should tell us something about that. So when we connect these dots between these three epidemics, the crack epidemic, the opioid epidemic, and now this current COVID pandemic, it would be utterly remiss if we don't pay attention to the racialized character of the deaths involved and that the money flows and it flows differently when there's primarily white persons and white communities suffering. Hi, I'm Gretchen Ritter, Executive Dean and Vice Provost for The Ohio State University's College of Arts and Sciences. Did you know 16 of our programs are ranked in the top 25 in U.S. News and World Reports, with nine of those 16 in the top 10? That's why we say that the College of Arts and Sciences is the intellectual and academic core of The Ohio State University. Learn more about the college at artsinsciences.osu.edu. You've pointed to this a little bit, but I'd like to hear a little more about the university, this university or the university as an idea, and the ways in which we are complicit in these systems. So tell us a little bit more about the place, the role of the university, and what we can do about it. 
this is never a fun topic. Of course not. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the truth is that the university has been complicit, right? I mean, when we look at the civil rights era and we look at the gains and changes that happen in the university, we see the emergence of departments such as mine, the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department. And to be clear, we're talking about the Ohio State University, not the university as, a, as an institution. Okay, I was going for the more abstract one, but I'll oh, talk okay, about okay. Ohio State University, either one. <laughs> uh, so what we see here at Ohio State, as well as at universities across the United States, is that after the civil rights era, mm -hmm. two kinds of departments begin to emerge. One is a women's studies department, and the other is a black studies department. Here at the Ohio State University, the black studies department emerged first, and it was definitely through their help that the Women's Studies Department eventually emerged. These kinds of, quote, identity-based studies departments, I think, were a woefully weak answer to the question of the civil rights era, and it has not addressed structural racism. And so the fact that these kinds of departments can be kind of added on to a curriculum that is European descended and European centered is itself a very clear indication of the problem. Now, I don't want to take us back to those kinds of canon wars and culture wars that we saw play out across the 80s and 90s, particularly because I am trained in philosophy and I do lament that the role of the humanities is not more robust at the Ohio State University and at universities across the United States. And so I would argue also that the ways that Black studies, ethnic studies, Latinx studies, Asian American studies, and certainly Native American studies have not been able to make inroads into the core curriculum of universities is a clear indication of where we have fallen short so far. So there are concrete steps that could be taken in what we ask undergraduates to be educated in at the university and how to be educated in those things that would open up a much different conversation around structural racism. So do I think that students should be deeply educated in the histories of colonialism, the histories of the transatlantic slave trade, and by histories, I mean history as a discipline, but also the robust cultures and literatures that are speaking to these things. I actually think that those are really, really transformative kinds of educational experiences. You were giving us the history of women's studies departments, black studies departments, especially in reaction to the civil rights movement. What might the Black Lives Matter protests engender for the university going forward? I hope that they're going to really push us to be braver and bolder. You know, I think the energy that happened, I was out in the streets a lot in Columbus, the horror of having direct confrontations with police officers who were escalating the situation, the way that it came so viscerally to home for so many people across races, I think has emboldened a whole generation and generations, but particularly the younger people who were at the forefront of all this, to demand more. High schoolers were out there, our college students were out there. I think we have a generation now who is impatient 
who wants to say, look, you've been talking about this structural racism for a long time. We want to see something concrete change. We want to see big, bold change. And so my hope is that there's going to be energy around this. And I don't mean energy just from administrators and faculty, but also from people outside the university who really do want to put funding into this and who really do want to think about, okay, what would it mean for these couple of kinds of departments to push that kind of educational project much bigger and bolder? I'm curious to know why this particular area of thought and research for you, obviously important, obviously necessary, but I mean, of all the things that one can study, how did this occupy your thinking, your thought process? That's a good question. And uh, always uh, takes me back to how we come to do the things we do, right? Mm. So I do study (laughs) psychoanalysis. And so I do think a lot about childhood and about, about how we're formed. I'm the daughter of an immigrant who lived through World War II in Amsterdam. And I grew up hearing a great deal about World War II and the horrors that he witnessed as a little boy there. And I am also the daughter of a woman from a small town in Texas who lived through the Dust Bowl. And so I know a lot about hardship. I heard a lot about hardship, but I didn't really experience it myself. And so I think that somehow I came to have a heightened awareness of injustice. Perhaps it's my astrological sign of being a Libra. (laughs) I'm up for any kind of explanation about why it bothers me so much, but it has always bothered me since I was a small child. And so throughout my career, I began to study philosophy in graduate school, and I was in a philosophy department for 12 years prior to coming to Ohio State. And my questions through philosophy were always about ethics. It was always about what would make for a more ethical society, what would make for a more just society. And as I push forward in my own intellectual work on that, the questions of white supremacy have come into clear focus for me that the core of injustice is coming through these twin systems of anti-indigeneity and anti-blackness that feed white supremacy. Earlier, you had mentioned uh, previous um, work that you did on neoliberalism. This is a book that was called Way Too Cool, Mm -hmm. Selling Out Race and Ethics. I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about this book. Sure. It was an attempt to think through this phenomenon, neoliberalism, which I do think is an important thing for people to understand, which is a shift in political and economic systems that occurs. Most people peg it to the elections of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, and so reaching formal ascendancy in 1980. But it's a slow shift that I argue is not just at the level of politics and economic policy, but it's actually at the level of culture. And so the book was trying to think about what it means to think about neoliberalism, not only shifting how economics works around a free market, but how we actually begin to feel about our world. So a great deal of it was about how we feel about the world, particularly as we internalize that market logic. So if we're always thinking in terms of markets, if we're always thinking about the the market value, the pros and cons of any kind of event, right, whatever it might be, then we have changed in how we understand the world. Can you give us an example of that kind of, what, feeling or neoliberal feeling or neoliberal effect? (laughs) 
Sure. So the argument of the book is that the ultimate feeling is cool. Cool. The way I finally hit on cool, which was a collaborative effort of talking to a lot of different colleagues, I always think that's how we do our scholarship best, was because what I was trying to get at at the beginning was how I, I thought it was a kind of apathy, a kind mm. of detachment, right? A kind of like, hmm, I'm just apathetic about what's happening. And then this idea of cool began to come on because it was a way of thinking about it as an aesthetics where to be cool, right, is to be detached. But that detachment is always kind of ironic. It's always, I'm too cool for that. I'm a little detached. You can't get too close to me. And it became the perfect aesthetic when I started working on the history of cool. Because the history of cool, at least one of the dominant histories of cool, is that it comes out of black culture. And it comes directly out of black jazz, particularly. And then as we move that through the 20th century, um, in black culture, it was always tied to rebellion or to a protective stance against white culture, trying to stay strong on black communities' own terms. But as we all begin to become cool, we erase that history. Mm. And that history no longer matters because anybody can be cool because the market just makes you cool because ultimately you just purchase cool, right? You just purchase cool stuff. And it's often cool stuff from some other culture, but you don't pay too much attention to that because as a white person, you know that you have that prerogative. And so being cool does the very thing that I'm worried about, which is it erases the history out of some of the problems that face us as a society and allow us to treat it like a commodity to be traded on the market. Uh, I know you're working on a, a new book right now. Tell us about your latest work. Trying to, trying to get there. It's not an easy time to be working these days, but the new work is definitely around these unconscious habits of whiteness. And so some of it is in relation to a remarkable book by Dion Brand called A Map of the Door of No Return. The Door of No Return is a figure uh, that's real and mythical. It's the door through which slaves were pushed from their holding cell, which was called a barracoon, onto the slave ships. And so Dion Brand, who's a fabulous diasporic thinker in Canada, a black feminist thinker, is thinking about that from the perspective of the enslaved. And I'm trying to take it up to think about it from the perspective of the slaver. So what would it mean for us to live out as white persons some constant connection to the door of no return? What does that mean? What does that look like, that experience? It means we have to stay in connection to the violence and greed that was pushing those bodies across that threshold and how that violence and greed is still with us. In what ways? still propelling how whiteness is functioning in the world. Why is it that we have a culture where white people are the predominant people in boardrooms and positions of authority and earning the most? Those are the easy sociological markers. Why is it that white people feel such entitlement to public spaces so that they can police other bodies in those public spaces? All of that has a very long history. And so I'm trying to take up this figure of the door of no return as a way to get at what some of these habits are. How does your thinking in these areas influence your teaching? The classes you teach, but how you teach these classes? 
Absolutely. I, you know, I, I love to teach. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. And so right now I'm teaching a graduate seminar on non-personhood and personhood, which is really about all of these questions to think about whiteness in relation to the concept of personhood. But at the undergraduate level, it really becomes a question of how to engage undergrads in these kinds of really difficult questions in a way that they won't turn off. So I use a lot of different approaches, right? I use film, I use literature, I use some texts that are a little, little on the difficult side, uh, some complex arguments. And I've been writing about this some too, I've been writing some about these pedagogical methods, which has been helpful. But I try to pay attention to how we can slow our students down into a more contemplative space that sometimes only happens inside a classroom because it's only when I have them in the class that I actually am for sure that they're not looking at Twitter and they're not trying to see what their friend is talking about, but they're just with me in these long kind of contemplative conversations. And in those moments, which I take to be really kind of sacred moments, it's amazing what students can finally come to see about themselves and to see about the world around them. Shannon Winnipst, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Voices from the Arts and Sciences is produced and recorded at The Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer. Produced by Doug Dangler. I'm Ava Dale.